This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be another adapted OrthoBullets Core webinar from the OrthoBullets Core curriculum, and this one will cover the topic of glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics from the shoulder and elbow section. The topic will be reviewed by Dr. Anthony Romeo, who is a renowned shoulder and elbow surgeon and the chief of orthopedics for Rothman Orthopedic Institute's New York division. So let's go ahead and get started. This is the first one's on the glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics section. Let's talk about these stabilizers and biomechanics. The uh, scapular plane is 30 degrees anterior to the coronal plane. I think about the scapula on the back of the chest wall. It aims about 30 degrees off the chest wall, and then actually the glenohumeral joint's another 30 degrees anteriorly. Abduction requires external rotation uh, to clear the greater tuberosity from impinging on the chromium. Uh, that's why if someone has an internal rotation contracture, they can't abduct the arm past about 120 degrees. And 180 degrees of abduction comes from the motion in two joints. It's talked about, it's not exactly correct, but most people will sort of stylize the, the motion between the glenohumeral joint and scapulothoracic joint as a two-to-one ratio, and that's something you can be tested on. And so it's considered about 120 degrees from the glenohumeral joint and about 60 degrees from the scapulothoracic joint. And uh, that's a, those are important points. That's why if you have stiffness of your scapulothoracic joint with the condition such that can cause snapping scapula issues, you're going to have a decreased range of motion, even though your glenohumeral joint motion uh, may be okay. So this is the way <clears throat> that we look at that. The static restraints for the glenohumeral ligaments uh, are the glenohumeral ligaments, of course, and we're very well aware of those. The anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament for anterior instability, and as we talked about, the middle glenohumeral ligament and superior glenohumeral ligament. The glenoid labrum is also a static restraint. It's thought to be sort of a bumper, almost like a washer that helps hold the glenohumeral joint in place. The articular congruity, uh, and again, the glenoid is relatively flat bony-wise, but that labrum forms a, a nice little cup or socket to fit in. Version can play a role, especially when it's beyond the normal values. Negative interarticular pressure is, a, is something that's been done and, and people have looked at that plays a role in holding, helping hold the humeral head in the socket. And uh, if you release that, the head will drop inferiorly. And that's because it, the glenohumeral joint ligaments in most positions are relatively lax. That's why the shoulder joint has such good range of motion. And mid-ranges of motion, what holds it in place are not the static restraints, but the dynamic restraints. And that's the rotator cuff muscles. And so that's very important to know. And so the primary biomechanical role of the rotator cuff is holding that humeral head in the socket or stabilizing the glenohumeral joint by compressing the head uh, against the glenoid. And that's a question that you'll see will pop up once in a while. And then other potential restraints are the biceps. We really don't recognize the biceps, really a secondary uh, constraint, and it doesn't really do much uh, to prevent in terms of anterior translation or inferior translation. And then the periscapular muscles, how you hold your shoulder can play a role. And that's why when you see people that can voluntarily dislocate their shoulder, usually what they first thing they do is they tip their scapula down, which puts the ligaments in the most loose position, and then they can slip the humeral head out. So the scapula plays a very important role in stability. So again, we've already covered this, but with the arm at the side and adduction, it's a superior glenohumeral ligament and coracohumeral ligament. With 45 degrees of external rotation and abduction, it's the middle glenohumeral ligament. In adduction, again, it's the, the superior, the upper part of the anterior part of the shoulder. And then with 90 degrees of abduction, external rotation, it's the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. 
and the posterior strain is the posterior band. It sort of forms a hammock underneath the shoulder, and then that also plays a role with forward flexion, abduction, and internal rotation for our shoulder. So these are important uh, concepts to understand for uh, stabilizing the shoulder joint. And just walk through all of those as we talked about. There's a nice reference article. This goes way back many years, more than 25 years, an article that uh, was done at the Hospital for Special Surgery to discuss this issue. And there's been a number of studies to validate this uh, over the years. Uh, Matt's done some really great work on the rotator interval and its role and what it plays. And so there's a lot of different references for that. So here, here's another good question for you. So the superior glenohumeral ligament is the is under the greatest stress when the humeral head and arm are in which of the following positions? So anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and externally rotated, inferiorly translated with the arm in 5 degrees of abduction, anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction, internally rotated, inferiorly translated with the arm in 45 degrees of abduction, internal rotation, and then inferiorly translated with 90 degrees of abduction and neutral rotation. So the superior glenohumeral ligament, we already talked about, it's important where it is with regards to adduction. And in fact, when the arm is by the side, that's when it's under the greatest amount of stress. And as soon as you start to abduct your arm, you actually take the tension off the superior glenohumeral ligament. So the role of each glenohumeral ligament has been clearly defined. And uh, we think about this in the knee all the time in terms of the ACL, PCL, LCL, and MCL. But sometimes people don't think about it in the shoulder the same way, but they should because that's the way you examine the shoulder and understand where there's a problem. The superior glenohumeral ligament, it's the restraint to inferior translation at zero degrees of abduction, along with the coracohumeral ligament, honestly. And it prevents that anterior inferior translation of the long head of the biceps pulley. So it actually, the superior glenohumeral ligament is less of a constraint of the biceps and the coracohumeral ligament, but they blend together anteriorly right off the edge of the subscapularis. And it's the coracohumeral ligament that goes over the top of the biceps that keeps it from sliding in and out. And when some athletes or individuals have biceps pain, one of the problems that can happen is they get a stretch uh, to that actual area and the bicep starts to glide back and forth and you'll see fraying of the tissue and also irritation of the biceps. So the pulley is very important for the overall stability of the biceps tendon. So middle glenohumeral ligament, most of you probably know about the anterior band, the inferior glenohumeral ligament. So knowing the middle glenohumeral ligament is going to just expand your knowledge base for these questions. It resists anterior and posterior translation in mid-ranges of abduction at 45 degrees. The posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament uh, is down low, and that leads to internal impingement and increased shear forces. So this is another concept altogether that when the posterior part of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is tight and the arm goes up in abduction and external rotation, it sweeps underneath the humerus and pushes it up. And that can actually put more pressure on the shoulder and that pressure is applied to the superior aspect of the shoulder. And this is a proposed mechanism for the development of superior labral injuries or slap tears uh, from our overhead throwing athletes. Still the most common mechanism that had been reported is actually a fall and outstretched hand, uh, but the athletes get a lot more play about how they hurt their shoulders. The middle glenohumeral ligament, this is just going on with this again, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. It is the primary restraint to anterior inferior translation. Now the coracohumeral ligament we haven't really talked about very much and basically the coracohumeral ligament as you can imagine goes from the core, the base of the coracoid over the humerus and it divides out 
and it forms this band of tissue over the top of the biceps which forms the pulley and that's very very important and connected to it but not exactly the same as the superior glenohumeral ligament the coracohumeral ligament it's been reported it can limit posterior translation with the shoulder flexed which is forward adducted and internally rotated and this was a concept that was really important for people that had recurrent inferior translation like our multi-directional patients but in fact one of the papers that Matt put together showed that if you do a really really good repair on the labrum and the capsule inferiorly and secure that down then generally speaking additional tightening up of the coracal humor ligament and rotator interval doesn't add a whole lot to your stabilization but it can restrict your external rotation so that's very important to understand that if you try to tighten that down with the arm in an internally rotated position you're going to lose external rotation and for a lot of individuals and athletes that's not a good thing to have so the coracohumeral ligament does resist inferior translation and that's important to know the labrum is a, an important structure a lot of people like to think about the labrum as essentially a washer that helps the humeral head sit centered in the glenoid. It creates this concavity compression phenomenon. So there's a concavity there and then the rotator cuff compresses in and the labrum represents uh, up to 50% or more of that concavity, especially at the inferior anterior aspect of the shoulder joint. So it's very important. So when that's disrupted, not only is it easy for the humeral head to slide across there, but the proprioception's messed up too because that labrum is an important part of that. It's composed of a fibrocartilaginous tissue. It's not hyaline cartilage. It has a decent blood supply throughout the lower two-thirds, but it's been well documented that the blood supply at the superior labrum is not very good at all. It's one of the proposed reasons why uh, those superior labral tears and the repairs don't seem to do very well. So uh, again, there's a, a number of things that can happen. I just want to call your attention to the fact that uh, the uh, labral structures can have a number of variants. This is particularly evident in the front part of the shoulder uh, in the area of the rotator interval. So be aware of things like a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament. There's also a structure that comes off of the front of the biceps that's a combined superior and uh, middle glenohumeral ligament and that's known as a Buford complex which is another normal variant. So there's a lot of different variations up in that area and a, even a sublabral foramen is something that's normal. So be careful about making sure not to call that abnormal. And here's just some examples of that. So the Buford complex is, it looks like there's an absent anterior superior labrum, but then there's a, a connection between both the middle and superior glenohumeral ligaments where they originate off the edge and then proceed to their normal positions. But you see this open hole, and some people might make the mistake of thinking, thinking this is abnormal, and then they suture it down or they put anchors in it, and the patients lose their external rotation. It can be a devastating complication to a young person, so you want to make sure you recognize that. And so that restriction of external rotation uh, is something you definitely want to avoid. Uh, there are other soft tissue stabilizers we can talk about, the posterior capsule um, with respect to the rotator interval. I think we've covered that very well uh, with respect to what that means. And, and just so you know, the rotator interval is bound by the coracoid, uh, the supraspinatus above, the subscapularis below, and then the transverse humeral ligament. So really that's the, your rotator interval structures. The soft tissue stabilizers that are dynamic, of course, the most important one is your rotator cuff. 
A lot of people keep forgetting about the subscapularis, uh, especially when we have tears and they want to leave them alone. But remember, the subscapularis is an important stabilizer. It's the largest rotator cuff tendon, the largest rotator cuff muscle. must be there for a reason. It does a lot of things. It stabilizes to posterior subluxation. And when your subscapularis complete, comes completely off, even in young people, and you take an x-ray and the axillary lateral, the humeral head's going to be translated anteriorly. So it's a critical structure. The biceps tendon, this says here it's, it acts as a humeral head depressor. I don't think you're going to get that question anymore. That's pretty much been proven with the arm at the side that it doesn't really do that very well. It doesn't stop the humeral head from superiorly migrating with cuff tear arthropathy. Uh, so that's a, it's kind of a, an older paradigm of thinking about things. The bony structures, uh, the humeral head, you know, when you design and develop shoulder replacements, you make the humeral head a sphere. But in reality, it's actually longer from top to bottom than it is from to back. It's about 10% uh, long, taller than it is wide. Uh, but most people think of it almost as a sphere. Uh, the average diameter is listed here is about 43. I think when we do reconstructions, we think of it being just a little larger than that. 43 may be a worldwide number. Uh, in the United States, that number is uh, considered a little bit higher, almost a 46 to 48. Um, and then uh, it's typically retroverted about 30 degrees. And we come up with that because if you look at the epicondylar axis of the humerus and you measure it, it's about 20 degrees. But we measure it off the forearm, and there's a 10-degree carrying angle further lateral and that's where you get the 10, 20 plus the 10 or 30 degrees and that's how you line it up with the forearm to say that it has 30 degrees of retroversion. And then usually the head is tilted up about 40 to 45 degrees uh, and so that puts it at about 130 to 135. But the variation for about 90% of the human population is between a 125 and 140 degrees of inclination. So, and that's important if you're trying to get the anatomy correct in a variety of different situations. The glenoid we know is pear-shaped. Uh, it typically has an upward tilt of about five degrees, uh, and that's very important. When we're doing reconstructions like reverse shoulder arthroplasty, we want to make that neutral, even slightly tilted down. So we have to take those things into consideration. And the average retroversion is somewhere between 5 and 7 degrees with normative data. But it can vary quite a bit. It can be 0. It can be more than 10 degrees. And so that's something you have to keep an eye on. But the normative data is usually under 10 degrees of retroversion. Um, and uh, just keep that in mind uh, with some of these questions. The coracoid is a very important structure just to understand. It's considered the lighthouse of the shoulder. And we oftentimes talk about as it being the lighthouse because on the lateral side, that's the safe side. And on the medial side, that's the suicide uh, because that's where the brachial plexus is. And you want to stay away from there unless you have a specific purpose for being over there and understanding exactly what's going on with the brachial plexus. And then, of course, attached to that area is the corcal brachialis and the short head of the biceps. And medially is the pectoralis minor, which is something that we have to detach with an operation like a ladder J. And Matt has actually written a paper about some athletes having a really tight pec minor doing a release arthroscopically and getting very good results uh, with that type of treatment. Um, the acromion, uh, we've talked about this for many, many years, for decades, about these three different types. Quite honestly, all three of these types are, can be normal. Uh, throughout our lifetime, we gradually get a little bit more. Many of us get more of a curve and even a hook. It's really an ossification within the ligament of the CA ligament that happens over time. Um, and, and these are the three types, the one flat, two curved, and three with a sharp hook. And it's been said that the acromial interval should be at least seven to eight millimeters. And if it's less than that, this can be a sentinel finding of rotator cuff disease. 
Uh, the deltoid is very important. When we initiate movement, uh, we do that with our supraspinatus, and then the deltoid starts to take over. And as we move our arm further and further up, the deltoid is more powerful than our supraspinatus, and the supraspinatus just stabilizes the uh, humerus within the glenoid. So it's important to understand that. Uh, there's a comment here about the optimal position for an orthodesis, which is based on function, which is about 20 degrees of abduction, forward flexion about 20 degrees, and internal rotation about 40 degrees or so. You don't want to internally rotate too much so that they can't use it on their face and for their uh, personal care, so you have to be careful. We don't do many fusions anymore, typically only for neurologic injuries such as motor vehicle accidents and or with motorcycles. So here's another uh, good question. What structure provides the dynamic glenohumeral stability by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid? Superior glenohumeral middle, teres major, deltoid or rotator cuff muscles. And I think we've covered this pretty well. And so we know it's the rotator cuff muscles. It's the primary dynamic stabilizer. It functions throughout the range of motion. Um, it, it even works to some degree at extreme range of motions, but that's, of course, where the ligaments start to take over and play a very important role because they're the check reins uh, to the shoulder mobility. So the static restraints, as we talked about before, the glenohumeral ligaments, the labrum, articular congruity, and uh, version, and then the negative intraarticular pressure. The dynamics are the rotator cuff muscles compressing the humeral head, um, and th that's the main one uh, that we think about in this situation. That's all for this review on glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizer, and biomechanics. If you would like access to the full video version of these core webinars, sign up for the OrthoBullets core curriculum today. There will be a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.